John is building this picture of uh, the, the person of Jesus. Uh, really, these first 18 verses are the, his introdu- introduction to uh, the gospel, his gospel, uh, and after that we'll, uh, we'll see that he then moves into actually then recounting the various events of Jesus' ministry. But we're focusing on understanding who, who is this Jesus uh, that God has sent to us. So this morning uh, we're focusing in on verses 9 to 13. There are, I want to draw your attention really to three very important terms in this passage which we need to make sure we understand clearly and from a biblical perspective uh, for two reasons. The first is they're, they're phrases or ideas that we may hear used in other religions or other philosophies but in those belief systems the phrases mean something very different to what they mean in the Bible. The second reason is that there are ideas which we as Christians might sometimes easily misunderstand or not understand, whether that's because we've been influenced by those other philosophies or just because we make some wrong assumptions about their meanings. So the first term is this idea of the true light, which we're told gives light or enlightens everyone uh, now the ESV translation here isn't, isn't the best because the word behind that word everyone in the Greek is, is actually all men or all human beings. The word is anthropos. We get our English word anthropology. Uh, it means a human being. It's the same word that's used in verse 4, a man uh, sorry, the light of men, the light of anthropos, of humanity. And in verse 6, a man sent from God, referring to John the Baptist. So just hold that thought because we'll come back to it in a moment. But what is meant by light? What is the true light? Now we know from Genesis 1 that light was created by God, the first act of his creation but that's a reference to physical light, light that we now know is, uh, is energy that travels very, very fast. It travels at the speed of light. But it's not physical light that we're speaking of here. Back in verse 4, we were told that the light of men is actually the life of the Word of the Son himself. Jesus is called the light. He calls himself the light of the world because he is the one who illuminates. He is the revelation of who God is. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. He, sh- he sheds the light on us and makes God known to us. Almost without exception throughout the Bible, except where it's using light in that literal, physical sense, light refers to a revelation of the character, of the the glory of God, and with that revelation, we are drawn into his presence to see him. Now, light is often used in the Bible in that sense uh, to refer to the Bible itself. 
As we know in the, the famous Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God makes something of his glory known through creation, but none of those things in creation, no matter how glorious and wonderful, are enough to enable us to know him personally. No one can know God by just contemplating or experiencing created things. The most those things were ever designed to do was to uh, cause us to acknowledge his existence and maybe want to then reach out and to find him. But no one has or no one will find God by that way alone. We know him personally as he speaks to us. He reveals himself to us in his word, which is written down as scripture. Jesus was often very clear on this. He often used the phrase, it is written. He pointed people to the written word of God because as he said, it's in these words that you find eternal life. It's in these words that you will find me. Of course, he is the word made flesh. He is the clearest revelation of God to humanity. But apart from the time of his earthly ministry, people and we still know him through what has been written down about him in the New Testament. We could see the scriptures as a bit like the lens on the front of a data projector. And interestingly, um, the data projector up there isn't working, so it's an apt illustration. Without the lens, there's light coming out of sorts, but it's blurry, it's fuzzy, it's unclear. But with the lens focused, the image comes into clear clarity. And we realise we cannot do without that lens on the projector. In the same way, uh, God makes himself known in the person of Jesus Christ and the lens that we need to see that clearly is his word, the scriptures. So the true light is Jesus himself, not an idea about him, but his living presence mediated to us as the Holy Spirit opens up the words of scripture to us. And the light that Jesus gives us, it's this full, personal, present knowledge of his Father. The idea that you you may hear from other religions or maybe even from some Christians uh, is that there's this kind of spiritual light within all people, that we all have a divine spark which uh, some try to make equivalent to the idea of the image of God in the Bible. But that's a completely wrong and unbiblical idea. In those religions, salvation is when we find the light within us, we fan it into flame, we manage to reach our true potential that's always been there, we just need to realise it. But the Bible tells us that we don't actually have light within ourselves. We are not light. 
human beings apart from Christ are actually in the darkness of sin and judgment. Jesus says this is the judgment, the light has come into the world but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Not only are we in darkness, darkness is our environment, but there's also darkness within us. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. In the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So light only comes to us when we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. So to say that this light of Christ gives light to everyone or to every human being, it's not actually a statement about the the nature of every human being in every place at every time, as if simply by coming into the world Jesus secured the salvation of everyone because they already have light. It doesn't mean every person without exception, but all people without distinction. What I mean by that is this. Up until the arrival of Jesus, the light of the revelation of God was given to the Jews. They were chosen by him. He set his love upon them. He gave them a revelation of himself in the law. And no other nation had this. If any non-Jew wanted to know the true God, if they saw something of his glory in creation and said, where can I find the true God? They would have to come to Israel. They would have to read the Jewish scriptures. They would have to submit to the Jewish laws, pray at the Jewish temple, make offerings at the Jewish altar. So Israel alone was given the light of God to which people could come if they were genuinely seeking God and his salvation. People in Old Testament times were saved as they came to the light located in Israel. But now, I think there should be a... I thought I had a picture there, but I don't. I think it's in the, it's in the newsletter. It illustrates this. Now with the arrival of the word, the true light, the direction of travel has changed. The light is shining out, going out not just to Israel but to all the nations of the world. The light that is the life of all people, the person of Jesus, is not just for Jews but for all people, regardless of whether they're a member of the Jewish race or nation or not. See what Isaiah says as he prophesies about Jesus. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel may be gathered to him, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing. Light there is as in heavy, heavy or light, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Judah, of Jacob, and to bring back the 
preserved of Israel, I will make you, this is his servant, Jesus, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So in Jesus, the light, which initially shone inwards, just upon Israel, has been turned around to shine outwards to peoples of all nations without distinction. The second important term for us to understand is this term, the world, there in verse 10. This word in Greek is cosmos. We get our English word cosmology, the study of the universe. It's also the basis for the word cosmetic because it's related to the word for decoration. So as the ancient people looked up and they saw the stars in the sky, the, the, the decorations that God had put there, it was the cosmos, this magnificent, beautiful universe. So it's often used to refer to the physical universe, but often in the New Testament and especially in John's Gospel and his letters, cosmos refers to the world of humanity, the specifically human dimension of the universe with all of our systems and cultures and nations. So when verse 9 says that he, the true light, was coming into the world, it's not referring there to him coming from heaven into creation. It's not strictly him as the uncreated eternal God who is spirit taking on physical created flesh made of atoms and molecules. We'll get to that in verse 14. But it's speaking of him coming to the world of humanity, coming to us, to be part of us, to be incorporated, not just in our biological human nature, but all that it means to be a human being, living in community with all of the systems, all of the things around us that makes us human beyond just our biological makeup. Your humanity is more than just the cells and the chemical processes and your psychological makeup. You're a member of the human race. Your identity isn't found merely in yourself and what you can learn about yourself and discover by looking inwards to yourself, but it's found in who you are as you relate to the rest of humanity, both those in close proximity to you, those with whom you have personal relationships, and with all of those who make up the big picture of humanity, of society and culture and nationality, all of those things of which we're a part. So Jesus was born of a woman, truly human, in every way, but not just his biology. He stepped into the world of ancient Israel. He stepped into a specific part of Israel, the region of Galilee. He would have spoken Aramaic with a Galilean accent. He would have probably preferred the types of foods that Galileans ate, probably a lot of fish, It's thought he was apprenticed by his father to be a carpenter. Although the word doesn't strictly mean woodworker. It was a word also applied to uh, stonemasons, to metal workers, 
uh, even to teachers sometimes. But it shows us that he lived in the world of humanity. He was in a family. He was in a local town. He was engaged in all the things that everyone else was engaged in. He wasn't distant and aloof. You know, the odd kid at school that some of the, the false Gnostic Gospels kind of portray him as. No, he was fully immersed in the world of humanity. So see what verse 10 then tells us about the world. Firstly, the world was made through him. And we saw earlier that phrase, through him, in referring to the creation of all things, means not merely he was the instrument through which the Father created everything, but that everything was created to be in relationship with him, for him to dwell in them and they in him. Their very existence depends on him and his glory infuses and shines out of them. Well, this same loving, relational, creative power at creation was also at work when he formed humanity. As Paul says in Acts 17, he made from one man every nation of mankind, the world, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. The nations that make us humanity, they've been made by God the Father through the Son. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because we're told also that the nations have been made for the Son. Psalm 2, 7 to 8 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So he comes to the world that was made through him and for him, but then we're told, yet the world did not know him. Up until this point, in this passage, everything has been positive, hasn't it? He is the word, he is the life, he is the light. All things were made through him. He shines his light and gives life and he comes to us into the world, but now we're abruptly pulled up and told that the world is not the way it should be. If we were writing this story, just as a made-up story and not a historical account as this is, how would we finish that sentence? I think we would say he came into the world and the world embraced him and celebrated his arrival and sang songs and declared a public holiday and put up decorations and held pageants and had family gatherings and banquets and gave gifts to one another. No, we're told he came into the world that was made through him and for him and yet the world did not know him or recognise him. Now John may be referring here partly to the obscurity of his birth, born to a poor family in the back blocks of Galilee, 
in a region of the world that was completely unknown to most of the world's population. Today we can know exactly what's happening on the other side of the globe within seconds of it happening, thanks to the internet, social media. But back then, can you imagine it? They didn't even have email. There was, a, there was that obscurity to Jesus' birth, but I think he's saying more than people were just ignorant of his birth. He's saying that the world into which he came was a world that already did not know him as the light, the word, the creator, the source of their life. Even though, as we've just heard, he is not far from each one of us, the world has shut him out, refused to acknowledge him, despite the fact that his glory is displayed in creation, despite the fact that his moral truth is felt in our consciences. The point here is not so much that the world didn't recognise him when he came, but that he came into a world that already did not know him. This is a world that ever since Adam and Eve has turned its back on God and so our minds have become futile in our thinking and our hearts darkened and foolish. The reason the world's in darkness as we saw in Ephesians 5, is because every member of the world is darkness themselves. The darkness of the world isn't a, it's not a spiritual power over us to which we are victims. It's a system that is dark because we are part of it. Each one of us, as a sinner, makes our own special, unique contribution to the darkness of this world. You may have heard the saying, this world is a better place because you're in it. A wonderful sentiment, but it's only partly true. Whatever good a person may contribute to the world while they're alive on this earth, they also make a contribution to the darkness. Even the greatest heroes of history and the heroes of the Bible are no exception. The greatest heroes have all been flawed. These days we're hearing a lot about these people in the past who have made great contributions to progress and to civilization and human rights and we're realising they were also known to be greedy and adulterers and tyrants, slave owners, racists, abusers. History books need to be rewritten. Monuments are even torn down because people realise these people that we have honoured for all the good they've done, have yet still contributed to the darkness. So the true light came into a world not filled with some light in in order to help us discover and realise our capacity for good. No, he came into a world that was already in darkness, a world that did not know him, did not recognise him in order to redeem it. The most famous Bible verse is just a few chapters away from this. John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. This verse verse tells us the nature of God's love, shown in the fact that he gave his only begotten son. But it's not saying that God's love is so big that it reaches to the whole world, because world here isn't referring to the size or number of people, the physical dimensions. It's, it's not talking about the extent or the breadth of his love, but it's talking about the nature of his love, that it's directed towards the world, the world that does not know him and in fact hates him. The wonder of God's love isn't just that he has the capacity to love lots and lots of people, but that he has the capacity and the intention to love his enemies. What makes his love and grace amazing isn't simply that Jesus loves all the children of the world, but that Jesus loved the children of the world who rejected him, who despised him, who nailed him to a cross, such that he still entered the world knowing that this was his destiny that had been set already by his father. The son came willingly, joyfully responding to the father's purpose, ready to die at the hands of the sinners that he was coming to redeem because he knew that his death at their hands would actually be how he would accomplish their redemption. He came to us who were already under his righteous wrath and on many occasions Jesus pronounced the judgment that we deserve and then he stepped into and under that wrath to bear it in our place to remove it from us. And it wasn't just a backup plan, it wasn't just a last minute thing because things went wrong. This was all the predetermined plan of God from eternity. What great love has God bestowed upon the world that he determined from the very beginning that we as his creatures would not know him just as the creator who made us but as the God who came and died for us. The average person might say they believe in a creator God but are they willing to believe in a crucified God? We can't truly say God is love until we've seen God hanging on a cross, plunged into the darkness of our sin and death. When the sun went out for three hours just before Jesus' death, that was a picture of the spiritual darkness that he had come and immersed himself into and the timing of his resurrection the moment of sunrise was a picture of the deliverance that he gives taking people out of darkness into his light through the forgiveness of sins now we don't have time to go into great depth into verse 11 but what John's showing here is a point that Jesus makes repeatedly through John's Gospel, that the people whom we think would be the most likely to receive him, they were no different, no better 
than the rest of the world. They were his own, referring to the fact that the Jews were God's chosen people. For 2,000 years since the promise to Abraham, they'd lived with this constant affirmation, I am the Lord your God, you are my people, my dwelling place is with you and among you. The Lord calls Israel his son, his treasured possession, his bride. Yet when he comes to them, they don't receive him. John's saying here, in in essence, what Paul says in the opening chapters of Romans. In Romans, Paul speaks about the sin and immorality of the world and then he turns to the self-righteous Jew who was nodding and pointing the finger and says, but you're just like them. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even those who outwardly appear to be godly and righteous still have an evil heart that needs to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. So we must avoid ever thinking, and I've heard this expressed, that if Jesus had come today to Australia instead of first century Israel, we wouldn't have treated him so badly. We wouldn't have crucified him. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that the reason Christmas is such a wonderful time of the year, the reason why even non-believers celebrate and have a sense of joy and goodwill is because we've somehow become better in ourselves, more able to show love and compassion and acceptance. Those things are only our experience today because he came in first century Israel and the Gospel has been proclaimed and taught among us for 2,000 years so those values that come out of the Gospel are ingrained in our culture. We wouldn't be extolling those virtues if he had not come. And if he had come now instead of then, be sure of this, we would crucify him. But see how the promise that comes with the Gospel, verses 12 and 13, it isn't about values or virtues or good behaviour. Jesus didn't come to make us good. He came in order that we might become children of God. I'll, I'll pick this up a lot more next week. But we need to see that Jesus didn't come to bring a moral revolution or as the carol says, surely he taught us to love one another. He came to bring reconciliation, to restore a relationship so that we might be children of the Father. Note that it says that those who receive him and believe in his name are given the right to become children of God. Some older versions of the Bible say power, but this word isn't speaking about our ability as if we could ever, by our own power, make ourselves children of God. Just as in natural birth, we don't contribute to it. We have the phrase, she gave birth to a child because the mother is the one who does all the work. Get ready, Lena. The child is just born. 
So too with spiritual birth. The work is all God's. So this word right doesn't speak of ability, it speaks of status. A status given to us by the Father who says, I'm adopting you as my child. I'm promising and guaranteeing you an inheritance. So look to my son and receive all that he's done for you on your behalf. Put your trust in him, in his name, because by being made one with him, you will be made my child. And there's the third important term we need to understand, this idea of in his name. We've recently seen in the book of Revelation that the name of Jesus is significant, as is the name of God. God's name isn't just a, an identifier to distinguish him from other gods. That's normally how we use our names. God's name is a statement about who he is in his essential nature, his entirety of being. He is the I am. I am who I am tells us that he's the eternal one, absolutely sovereign over all, to whom all creatures must bow. So to know God's name is to know him and so too with Jesus. Jesus' name means all that Jesus is and all that he has to give us. So when Jesus said, later in John, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He's not saying just choose whatever you want, car, house, job, money, healing, whatever. And as long as you tack on the words at the end, in Jesus' name, in your prayer, then his name will work like a a magic power and cause it to happen. No. We should think of it more like a title deed that has Jesus' name at the top and a list then of everything he is and everything he has to give to his precious bride, his beloved bride. His name is all that he is and all that he has to give. Life, light, peace, hope, joy, the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of eternal life, the Holy Spirit, entrance into the Father's family and inheritance, the ability to love as he has first loved us. The list could go on and on about the, the things in the storehouse of the riches of Christ. He's saying, ask anything of those things, everything that I've died and risen in order to make freely available to you, including my very self, ask for any of that and I'll do it. Because that's why I have those things, that's why I came. So what does it mean then to believe in his name? can't be just intellectual belief, belief that he lived and died and rose again. A lot of people claim to believe that, but there's no evidence in their lives that they know it in their hearts. Well, John helps us understand by what it means by telling us that it is those who receive him. Not receive from him, receive him. Everything that is in his name we are to 
receive and to receive is to acknowledge that it's a gift, freely given, not on the basis of our goodness but on the basis of his grace. If you give your gifts uh, to people this Christmas and the recipients say, dear, thank you, I deserve this because of how nice I've been to you this year, it wouldn't be a gift. It would be a payment and you'd probably feel insulted that uh, they think they've earned your generosity. Jesus, Jesus is the lavish, extravagant generosity of God to us. He gives us everything that is in his name so that everything that's his becomes ours. We're adopted into his family and we're so secure in that adoption that it's exactly as if we had been born into that family. So, will you receive all that is in Jesus' name for you this Christmas? And as the Holy Spirit opens people's hearts to be willing to talk and discuss the story of Christmas, will you be ready to offer this gift to invite people to come in to receive this abundant grace and this goodness of the Father that we have in Jesus? Let's pray.